0: Remember what we're talking about in this series, how God works in history. And we wanted to talk about and expand our view just a little bit of God working not just through Jews and Christians, not God just working through Bible stories, but God's actually architecting history, if you will, to accomplish his purpose. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in this lesson. But in terms of a review, I've been using this model because I think it's really helpful. But if you think about uh, you get a brand-newborn baby and you go, life is really good. Then you go home from the hospital and you go, wait a minute. This thing poops and spits up and does all kinds of stuff, right? So kind of a story of humanity. God creates things good. Humanity falls. We sin. And so now God embarks, instead of taking the baby going, wow, I didn't sign up for this, I think I'll take this baby back to the hospital. No, you're going to raise this child. Now, I know this is an analogy, but I think it's a helpful one to think about what God is doing in history. So you begin to raise this child, and in our first session, we looked at a big chunk of history and said, this is humanity in its infancy, so to speak. And so in the Old Testament era, and with the civilizations in that time period, from you know prehistory down to 326 B.C., you see God working through specific people and through a specific nation, a geopolitical entity called Israel. Ethnic at first, national after that. And he begins to try to influence history through the Jews. So it's not that God... I'd like you to think about this not quite so much as the story of the Bible is about the Jews... The story of the Bible is about God doing something with humanity through the Jewish people. Now, I know that's a little subtle, but that's a, I think that's a healthier way to look at what God's doing. Because what he's decided to do is he's going to redeem humanity. He's going to restore humanity. He's going to raise this child up from a disobedient two-year-old to a faithful uh, Adam. Re, you know, a recreation of that restored individual. So first session was kind of the immaturity, the age of immaturity of humanity. In our last session, we went from 326 B.C., birth of Alexander the Great, into the age of reason. And we went up a little bit arbitrarily to 1454 A.D., which we're going to get into yet another phase of humanity, if you will. But during that age of reason, we saw that God, Jesus, comes because God's prepared the world through what he's done with Israel, with the right ideas The Roman and Greek empires have prepared the world logistically. Trade routes spread the word rapidly. See, Jesus Christ comes and ushers us into a more grown-up way of thinking. And so the New Testament is, i like you think about it, is this is God dealing with reasonable people as opposed to toddlers. Again, don't stretch this analogy too far, but I think it's a very useful way to think about it. So Jesus comes talking about the heart. He doesn't come with 613 commandments in the law of Moses. He comes talking about, you know, you've heard that it was said this, but I actually say that you know, that you shouldn't kill your brother, but I want to talk to you about hatred in your heart. You've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. I want to talk to you about lust in your heart. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye, but I want to talk to you about forgiveness. In other words, things you might talk to your teenager or college student with, right? Uh, Things about matters of the heart. Well, in this session, uh, and God's working primarily at that time through the church. The church is not a geopolitical entity. The church is not an ethnic group of people. It's not a national group. It is a multinational, multi-ethnic group of people who are not bound by geography or the fact that we're related or anything or even a particular political ideology. The church is bound across all those borders by the unifying force of the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So it begins to affect the world. And we saw how the church was very effective. Let's move forward to the time period of 1454 to the present. And I'll tell you in a minute why I chose 1454, because it is a, it's a one of those hinge points in history. And humanity changes. I mean, forget the Bible. Humanity changes at this time. Really significant things that affect you and me today. Because I want to talk about what God is doing in the modern world. Well... God used the church as the way to move forward. This is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Some of you have been there, and it's gonna be my image to you of what the church became in this time period. This is what I'm gonna call the age of enlightenment or the age of, of growing up, dealing with the full adult. The church in this time period, 15th century or so, by this time, the Catholic church has a big structure, very powerful, very institutionalized, and I want to tell you the negatives and the positives. The negatives is the church at this point in time has become very dogmatic. It's become very codified in what it believes. It looks very much in many ways like the law of Moses. You have get the basic Catholic doctrine of salvation not by faith, not by grace alone, And through faith but also by works and you get a blending you get the church becoming an institutional force now on the positive side that actually served this era of history really well because I want to tell you about two things that happened here in Europe that uh, are a big big deal the first is the bubonic plague the black plague I'm going to show you a map I'm going to use this to talk about the Ottoman Turks in just a minute but right now I just want you to look where Europe is In about 1350, the bubonic plague, which is probably a a series of plagues, sweeps through Europe, kills 30 to 60 percent of everybody in the population. I mean, the the population of Europe in a very short period of time goes from approximately 400 million people in all of Europe to maybe 250 million. I mean, you just need to think about Half the people in this room die in one generation. Half the people in this city die. Well, that caused huge, huge social, uh, religious, and economic upheaval. So the economy gets wrecked. The society is significantly affected. The way people thought about life and death Changed when you see that much death. And you're gonna see humanity on, the, on one side of the plague really different than human, human thinking on the other side. But I'm gonna give this credit to the Catholic Church because at that time, I think that the, the social structures and even the governmental structures were really strained and civilization itself could easily have fallen apart when you have 30 to 60% of your population die very quickly. The Catholic Church and the structure that it had, in my view, were essential to bringing humanity, bringing all of Europe through that time period. And so that served it very well. It didn't serve everything uh, very well because there were a couple of things that were happening at the time. The Catholic Church, because of the dogma, began to want more influence on people, and it began to interact with the nations around it in a very formal way. The Catholic Church, think about the Renaissance popes, if you know anything about them. They were a real piece of work, and they were very secular, very worldly. The church had become very entwined with politics and power, and trying to exert very temporal, huge amounts of temporal power. Part of that was self-serving. Part of that was defensive, because the other thing that's happening in this time period is the Byzantine Empire, what's left of the Roman Empire, was headquartered in Constantinople, and I have a, just a little arrow there for Constantinople. Rome, you see Italy on the far left in the gray, had fallen way back in the 5th century, 400s. Eastern Roman Empire, called the Byzantine Empire, out of Constantinople, had hung around until about 1454. Well, Islam had been expanding out of Arabia, very militant, very nationalistic, militant kind of religion, conquering, spreading Islam through conquest since the Prophet Muhammad. Call it about 650 A.D. is when it became very militant, and it burst out of you can see uh, Mecca and Medina burst out of the Arabian Peninsula, and it became an Arab movement for a little while. Then they conquered non-Arab nations. They became Muslim. And now fast forward through the centuries, Turkey becomes conquered and becomes Muslim. But over time, instead of the center of the Islamic empire, it actually moved around. Being in Arabia, it is by this time period in Turkey. And so there's an empire that's Muslim, but it's also an empire like the Greeks or the Romans or whatever, called the Ottoman Turks. And these are Turkish people, they're Muslims, and they rule not only the Muslim world, but they're trying to take over everything. Well, as they begin to fight what's left of the Christian, Catholic, Byzantine Empire, the church not only gets involved in nations for its own interests, it gets involved in nations as a way to fight Islam. Does that make sense? This became a very physical fight. The Crusades in the 1100s, now by the 1400s, Islam, the Ottoman Turks, their armies have been more successful. And you see the church really getting entwined with the nations. The other thing that happened... And so in 1454, the Ottoman Turks conquer Constantinople. And so this is kind of colored so you can see the time frame, but look how huge that empire gets over the next couple of hundred years. But it basically, that Roman Empire finally falls. And so Islam is very politically popular. People flee, scholars, learned people flee from there to Europe, the gray area. When the Muslims overtake it, they fled to Christian Europe where, the, where Catholicism and the kingdoms were more powerful and they were able to fight off Islam. A lot of them went to Italy. That sparked, that between the press of Islam and then the radical change in Europe with the bubonic Plague meant that everything sort of got just upset and it's sort of like a hit the reset button. So you get all these scholars coming in with all this learning, you see this social upheaval, and people begin to say, you know what, we don't have to do this the way we've always done it. Maybe we just kind of start over in society and do some things differently. And that led, for example, to some interesting uh, things that are going to change history as well. The Gutenberg and the press and printed works happen right in this time frame. And so you begin to be able to find movable type, so you can print books. By the way, the Chinese had done this in 1000 AD. This is 1454 with Gutenberg and the press, but they did it with uh, pottery. And one of the big reasons that there was a difference, because that's going to spark, along with all these other factors, in Europe it's going to spark what's called the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. It is an explosion of culture and learning didn't happen that way in China and partly because of simply the difference in the alphabet. But if you think about the way Chinese language works, every word is a different character. It's not phonetic. Whereas the languages of this part of the world use letters. I mean, we have 26 letters, you can make all our words. Chinese language, that's not the way it works, you've got hundreds and hundreds and thousands of symbols that are different. So you can see that having movable type made things better there, but if you've got movable type and all you've got is 26 letters and you can print anything you want, you can really print a lot of books. So the social upheaval in Europe, uh, the scholars fleeing the East, Eastern Roman Empire as it's overtaken by Islam, and then the printing press, all these things come together to spark the renaissance in Europe. The Catholic Church, this is not a good move for the Catholic Church. Remember the Catholic Church is trying to really keep a lid on things, get a lot of power. The renaissance is all about an expression and an explosion of the arts and life. And so the renaissance begins to affect the church. The uh Church is seeing turmoil, the Catholic Church at that time, seeing turmoil from the culture and seeing outward pressure. Those two things drive the church to do more of what it's already doing, which is, I'm going to control these nations because that's where my security lies. You begin to see the church really losing its focus. It's no longer multi ethnic, you know, a mission of reach the world for Christ as much as it is. We have to confront the forces of the culture and the forces of Islam. And to do that, we need some armies. And so we need this next era is the church trying to exercise its authority through nations. That leads to a couple of things happening. The first one is the Protestant Reformation. So in the early 1500s, right in the same time frame, you see people in the church saying, wait a minute. This isn't what the church is supposed to be about. In other words, we seem to have regressed back to a law-based, a works-based salvation. It seems like the church is more interested in making money and in influencing kings and queens and armies than going back to the scripture. And so you see the rallying cry of these reformers to say, look, the church is off track. And that's what the Reformation movement was about. And whether you're Catholic or Protestant, this is just a matter of history. Their point was the church is off track. And so it was a call. You know, Luther nails up these 95 things the church is doing wrong. Everything from selling indulgences to, you know, salvation by works, etc. And he says, let's go back to the scripture and see what God's intent is for his people, the church. How is, I'll put words into his mouth, how does God want to use us as he works in history, because it doesn't look like this is the way. The church begins to look like another multinational corporation or a huge empire of its own. So you begin to see the Protestant Reformation, and that begins to defray, the, it really breaks down the power of the church. And so now you see this proliferation of people reforming, going back to Scripture. Gutenberg's got a press, we can start printing the Bible now. And so the Bible then gets translated. It was translated into Latin a long time ago because of the Roman Empire. Now it starts getting translated into all kinds of languages. And you could get killed for doing that. The Catholic Church didn't want that to happen. But fundamentally what happened was information became accessible to a lot of people. And they picked up the Bible and they said, hey, this is what God wants us to be doing. So you see this tension and schism in the church. But the same thing is happening, and and by the way, there's an interesting little counter-revolution, Reformation inside the Catholic Church. Uh, Loyola forms the Jesuits in this time period, by the way, and the Jesuits were formed to go combat the Protestant Reformation by taking Catholic ideas to the world, and you know that the Jesuits were very successful in spreading Catholicism with those explorers. In other words, the Catholic Church and the governments were together, and as the governments would send out explorers to the New World, send out explorers to Central America, the Jesuits were very successful in this counter-Reformation, taking Catholic doctrine with them. The the next thing that's happening, though, and I want to spend a little time on this because this, not only are we as a church affected by the Reformation, because we are Protestants, and so we are Protestants, still in some sense part of that reform movement trying to go to the scriptures and say, what is God's purpose for the church? How does he want us to influence history? The other thing that we're a child of, if that's our mother, our father comes from the culture. Because the other thing that happened at that time is what's called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is it happened in the late 17th century, so think 1600s, and into the 18th century 1700s. so we're moving a little bit past the Renaissance Protestant Reformation in the 1500s now into the 1600s and 1700s you begin to see the fruit of that bubonic plague of the Catholic Church and its dogmatism of the pressure from Islam and this reaction against the church well people who weren't religious said you know what we, we also, they're also having this reinvigorating, this renaissance. And the Enlightenment is a different way of thinking. And it is the basis for the way our culture thinks today. And as a matter of fact, all of Western culture, which has pulled along with it, Eastern culture. And so the Enlightenment was the age of reason. You'll hear it called that sometimes. But it fundamentally emphasized reason and individualism. This is where humanism comes from. So the enlightenment said, you know what? I think we need to live our life based on what we think and science and logic and we as individuals are the highest value in the world. Contrary to the church which said you as an individual are not the highest thing in the world. And at that time the church was a little off message saying the church is the highest thing in the world. And tradition is the guiding method for living, not your reason. So you see how diametrically opposed the Enlightenment is. Put a picture of uh, da Vinci, I figure he's as good a poster child for this, and then some of his works, and you see the art, the Renaissance art, the flowering of the arts, and you also see science uh, getting renewed, kind of a throwback to the ancient Greeks in that age of reason. So what's happening in the Enlightenment and uh, another period I want to talk about here in a second, just a little bit of that, is a reaction against tradition, a reaction against the church, and a human-centric view of the world, and a my brain can figure out the right way to live. We are children of that movement. In the same time period, though, there were people of that time that said, wait a minute, we don't really want to worship the church but we think you're being very reductionistic. In other words, there's more to life than me and my brain because as the Enlightenment thinkers get going, they they begin to discount things like creativity and imagination and emotion. And so you see a movement called Romanticism. Romanticism are those artists and poets and thinkers like Rousseau and others like that who say, wait a minute, there's more to life than just reason. There's also part of being a human, they're still humanists, but part of being human is imagination and love and poetry and the arts. And so you have this, you see kind of an explosion of the way people are thinking. And all of a sudden the church becomes no longer the great power. It becomes, in a, what you might want to think about, a marketplace of competing ideas. So the Catholic Church, and and then to a certain extent the Protestants, are trying to take God to the world. And now instead of taking God to a willing world, you're taking God into a marketplace of ideas. The world has changed, and humanity has decided that maybe I'll be king. So this is kind of the environment uh, into which the modern world is set. In other words, I realize we're talking about things that happened in the 1600s, 1700s, and I'm going to skip over the 1800s and 1900s a little bit. But fundamentally, because I want to get to the 20th century, because that really influences us. But those events not only influenced Europe, influenced all the Western world, and then has brought the developing nations with it. And if you look at the history of China in the 1800s and being opened up forcibly by the power of the West, new ideas being introduced. China's been a struggle, for example, to keep traditional values, went through the communist phase, but fundamentally trying to keep traditional values versus these humanistic, individualistic centered ideas. And and just to paint with a very broad brush, China's been wrestling with that idea for a couple of hundred years. India has found a different way to cope. In India, that civilization said, I've already got a polytheistic religion. I'll just absorb you, kind of like an amoeba. Like, you want to bring your Christianity? Fine. You want to bring your humanism? Fine. I already got 500 gods. What's a couple more? And so that civilization embraced it in that way. And so you begin to see the world becoming a more complicated place, and you would expect, think of the world now as becoming... Not a toddler, of course. Not even a teenager. Think about the world as becoming an adult. Now you have a myriad of choices before you. And that's kind of the nature of our world. And that's the situation that the church finds itself in in the modern world. Okay? That makes sense? Kind of blitz through that pretty quickly to to get us to the modern world because I want to spend a little time on that. But you really have to understand where the roots are of our culture and our thinking are and, and the, where the church came from. So the church comes into the modern world with a legacy that is off track. And again, I'm not trying to criticize Catholicism or some of the Protestant religions, but fundamentally, the church is perceived in this environment as maybe being an institution, you still hear this today, the church is too institutionalized, the church is too interested in supporting itself, it doesn't really point to Christ, the church has become very insular, it's not reaching out to the world, it's all about us, kind of the holy huddle type thing. You still hear that, that has its roots in this time period. You see the secular culture not unified at all either. It's not really a pagan culture, it's sort of a post-pagan culture. Instead of non-Christians are people who just believe in a bunch of other gods, now non-Christians are people who effectively believe in a bunch of other gods, but I'm going to paint it a little different way. I mean, it really is, but instead it's more humanistic. In other words, I reject gods entirely and I will be God. And so it's either my reason or my humanity and begin charting ethics and the future of the world based on that idea. So the church is really combating a different marketplace of ideas out there. So that's kind of how we come into modern times. So in the modern world, I want to show you this little montage, because this is where we land. I want to talk about the 20th century. We are products, our world is a product of two things, again, I'm painting with a broad brush, but the Enlightenment, everything we've just talked about, and the 20th century because you have two interesting things warring here we have lived in a very schizophrenic world on the one hand the legacy of the enlightenment leads to you know Isaac Newton and physics and Albert Einstein and medical researches and you see us in space you see us with unbelievable medical technology you see the fruits in some sense of the enlightenment and of humanism and of science now you know my argument is is christians should be the best scientists because we have the best worldview i mean we actually literally have a worldview that makes sense but this idea of emphasizing reason has paid some dividends in terms of mastery of our world at the same time though the church confronts an ideology that not only is very good In terms of technology, that same technology created mustard gas in World War I and the atomic bomb in World War II. Some of these pictures, you know, is military, upper left, you see kids in Africa in armies. I mean, this, if you want to stop and think about it, I want you to step back for a minute. We live in a world that is very schizophrenic. And that is the result of that explosion out of the Enlightenment. On the one hand, You know, we can go into space and we have high tech and you can access any piece of information you want on your smartphone. And that kid's carrying a weapon, no education in a country with technology, no access to it whatsoever. He might as well be living in the ages of the Old Testament, ethnic strife. You see what I'm saying? Down below that is a picture in India. You see massive, massive poverty huge poverty in the world in the midst of plenty that's kind of schizophrenic if you stop and think about it, the age of enlightenment humanism individualism what about them the third picture the one on the bottom right is one that i keep and i look at every now and then because it haunts me this was taken during a civil war in africa And so we have regressed in the modern world. I mean, this is the same people, I just want you to hold this in your head, that have this great medical technology, right? The world today, we're into space, we've got all this technology, and we have ethnic strife that leads to situations like that. You've got people who are born in one family fighting fundamentally people who are born in another family. And so the church in the world is not facing Somebody that looks like an adult, it's facing someone who who is basically an insane adult. That's the legacy into the modern world, and that's what the church faces. Church in the Middle Ages, was humanity brutal? Sure, humanity was brutal. Church in this age, people think we're civilized. Just look at those pictures and tell me we are civilized. In other words, the legacy that we have is far more complex in the modern world, and I think that affects the mission and how we go about doing church in the modern world. Uh, the, the world has this dichotomy. On the one hand, we have this huge optimism in the, out of the Enlightenment that we can figure everything out, and we are the most important thing in the universe. Think Space shuttle, think medical technology. At the same time, we come through the 20th century, and I know I've told you this before, but I use cannot underestimate the severe chronic depression that humanity has because of the 20th century. You go into the 20th century, with this enlightenment mentality, we are gonna conquer the world. And stop and think about what was discovered in really less than that 100 years. Al Gore invented the internet, you get, Drugs to cure diseases. I mean you stop seriously stop and think about oh my goodness from 1900 to the year 2000 Whoa what an explosion of knowledge and technology and great things For some of us you get the enlightenment mentality of reason and individualism You go through the 20th century more people are killed in ethnic conflicts and war more genocide than add up the rest I mean it's unbelievable. I thought we were adults now. In other words, this is humanity in its adult phase. But look what's happening. You get this severe depression that we in a romantic way, emotion, imagination, ethics, etc., very depressed. And so the legacy of our world is this real tension between uh, we're optimistic, we can do it, we can figure it out. Humanity is really important. Boy, we stink. We're killing people all over the world. It's genocide. We're destroying our environment. We've got kids that are dying for trivial reasons. You see that? Do you see the situation? Well, what this means for the church is is that to address a schizophrenic person, you have to figure out who am I talking to. And the message, on the one hand, is how do I engage your ideas, Mister Enlightenment person? The church needs to bring an intellectual case and address, go into the world of the humanist, and into the world of the person who values reason, and say to it, God has something to say to you. Christianity cannot be a dumb religion. It never has been, but it certainly can no longer be that. On the flip side, you're also talking to somebody who's chronically depressed. And so you're gonna take a message, which is tailor-made also for the church, of hope, and that God can overcome the fallenness of humanity. And gee, I'm sorry, Mr. Enlightenment person, that you thought humanity had evolved. Turns out, no, you're no different than when you were a toddler. You just have more powerful toys to lash out at people. But what does that person need to hear? A message of redemption, a message of hope, a message of God being able to recreate us. Does that make sense? That's different than history. The church now is called to speak a couple of different messages, a couple of different languages to our culture. So as we, and I say all of that, uh, in a really long-winded way, I I know, to tee up the question, what does God want us to be doing in the world today? How's God want to work in the modern world, 21st century world? Well, I think he wants us to go embrace the culture in which we find ourselves. And we find ourselves and then we'll talk about this in a second, we'll pause, but I want you to understand the situation in which we find ourselves, because that determines not our mission, but our method. Question? Yes, would you say that the enlightenment is the foundation of the it's all about me attitude? Is it the foundation of the all about me in a very philosophical way? And admit, you know, I've really shortened this. There's a lot to this story, but fundamentally, I'm going to argue this is the thread that's running through it. Enlightenment said individualism and reason. Just translate that forward into a culture that's pampered like ours. Not everybody in the world lives under the illusion that it's all about me. If you go hungry like that. Reality hits you in the face and tells you it's not all about you so part of it is certainly the enlightenment attitude But part of it is also where you live and whether or not how far away you are from the reality of the world But yes, no question about it that me centric human centric view of the world Because that's not the view that people had before that time period. Yes. Good question Okay, I want to get into the two things. Let's look ahead to what our task is as a church and the end times. I wanna just kind of bring that in a little bit. Our job now, if you think about my analogy, we're getting close to the end. And I don't mean that in an alarmist way, like, oh, the world's gonna end in a week, go sell all your IRAs. You know, I mean, I'll cash them in, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if you follow this story, we're in the adulthood phase of God dealing with humanity. He's going to finish this at some point, and Jesus said that. The book of Revelation says that, kind of maps out what the adulthood looks like for us. So we're kind of in the end phase. Regardless of your eschatology, I mean, how you see the end of the world playing out, everybody kind of agrees, yeah, God's been taking humanity somewhere. The task hasn't changed. God has always been trying to get us back to the Garden of Eden. And in fact, that's why in Revelation, whether you take this literally or symbolically, you still understand that Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible, have the Garden of Eden, which was started us in the first two chapters of the Bible. I mean, there's, that's not a coincidence. The end plan is to bring us back to the Garden, to restore us, to grow us up from the disobedient children to the obedient, loving children. You know, children of God living in a healthy family. So that's kind of where God is going. We are in that end time period in the sense that we're grown up. We're, God's doing the final things that he's going to do to redeem humanity. But here, And here's the point I want to make is that the church is the only way to get there not through national movements. Church remains, and if you look in Revelation, you still see it's the story of God's church in the end times. It's not the story of a nation in the end times. It's the story of the church playing it out in the end times. So our task is the same. We're trying to grow, us, grow people up. The method that we use, and this is a really useful analogy from Ezekiel back in Old Testament times, Ezekiel is warning the people of Israel that they have basically fallen away, and here's the charge that God gives him. And so to a certain extent, this defines our mission in the world. With an adult, are we here to coerce adults into becoming Christians? Like a toddler, we're going to spank you and not allow you to touch the hot stove? No. We become more like this. He says, son of man, Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear what I say and give them warning. When I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, you do not speak out to warn him. That wicked man will die for his sin, and I'm going to hold you accountable. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you have saved yourself. In other words, in words of Mother Teresa, we were called to be faithful watchmen in our culture, We are not responsible for coercing. In other words, sometimes we treat our culture like we're back in the old days with a toddler. Come in here and let me beat you over the head with my Bible until you submit. That's really not how you deal with adults, is it? In this sense, we are bringing a message and the power is in the message. And God says, I'm gonna sort this out, but you need to be faithful to bring that message. And so the role of the church in the end times is fundamentally to take the message of the gospel as a warning or as a, a, a watch to this culture and to take it in a way that engages the culture, intellectually engages the legacy of the enlightenment and emotionally engages the depression of humanity as they realize that we're not as good as we think we are. So you bring the hope of the gospel and you bring the mind of God to the culture. That's really our method. That's really all we're about. Some would say, no, I thought we were about having awesome student ministry. You know, not really. If we're not careful, the institutional church, and there's nothing wrong with the institution of the church as long as it effectively channels this mission to the world, we could easily slip back into that Middle Ages thing, couldn't we? Oh, it's a terrible fallen world out there. Let's just keep them out, and let's just take care of each other. That's not our mission, is it? The charge to Ezekiel is, look, Ezekiel, you're going to get out there and it's going to be unpleasant, but your job is go tell them what I told you to tell them. And that is our mission in the end times. And I say that to you because a lot of discussion now about what's the church supposed to be about, what about the end times, should we be supporting Israel, should we be supporting America, should we be doing this? What we should be doing is watchmen for the culture. You've got a schizophrenic patient out there, and you need to go engage their head, engage their heart with the gospel and then god will sort that out that really is our mission in this culture and so it's not antagonistic it's more therapeutic jesus came and said i don't see a bunch of evil people of course they were and they would be judged he said but i prefer to look at them as lost we go out into the world and say i prefer not to see really smart technological people or really mean people who are starving and torturing people this world is lost. It's lost its mind. And so I'm going to bring a mind of God and I'm going to bring the heart of the gospel. Okay? That's, the, that's really our mission. Here's what complicates it. This is the point I want to uh, make to kind of end this thought. Here's what complicates it. Our temptation, this is an interesting little map. The one you have on your handout I didn't talk about, it's just the percentage of Christianity in different nations. It's kind of a cool map, but it doesn't suit my purposes, but I thought you might like it. This map is really interesting. It is the percentage of Christians by how dark the red is. So every country that's red is nominally has a lot of Christians, and the darker the red, the, the more Christians. And in green is the same with Islam. In other words, if it's a light green, there's a lower percentage of Muslims. Dark green, there's a high percentage. For example, you look at China, not, it's kind of white. In other words, there are not a lot of Christians, not a lot of Muslims there. It's uh, secular, or it's Buddhist, or it's a variety of other things. But you can see kind of the Islamic area. You can see that at least the nominally Christian areas. One of the temptations to get us off focus is there are actually several interesting temptations for the church. Remember, we talked about what's our mission. We have a mission to go warn the culture. We're adults now. We don't have a mission to coerce them. We don't have a mission to beat them to death. We have a mission to go love them and engage their enlightenment brains. right? But what is tempting to us is to go back into the Middle Ages and define ourselves as a reaction against Islam because it is a threat to Christianity. I understand how compelling that is when you look at this kind of a map and you think, hey, maybe we should be aligning ourselves with the Christian nations and maybe our mission is to fight Islam. That's not our mission, and I think it's a great way to get the church off track of its mission for two reasons. One, it takes us away from warning the culture and moves us more towards, I'm fighting against this. And two, it causes us to stop being multi-ethnic, multinational, and be going, we're the American church supporting America to try to defend something. I'm not talking about not being patriotic, I'm not talking about not being involved in politics. I'm just trying on a higher level to say don't get we can't get sucked into a lesser mission than what we're really called to do. One of the ways to do that is to get sucked into this idea of we are reacting against forces that are pushing. We're not reacting. We are the force in the world to go out and warn the world. Another way to get off track is to be co-opted in our mission. One way is to define ourselves as we have, a, we have an existential threat. We have no existential threat. The church is not going to be eradicated. I've read the book of Revelation. We win, okay? There is no existential threat to the church from outside. Can Christians be persecuted? Absolutely. Are Christians going to be killed? Absolutely. Is the church going to go away? Of course not. It's everybody else that has an existential threat. And God said, get out there and warn them about that. The other thing is, one is to define ourselves by what we're against. The other is to co-opt our message with something that's also good, like humanitarianism, a social gospel, A gospel of liberation. You'll see these movements from inside the church that are not in and of themselves bad things. They're just not the main thing. So if the church redefines its mission in any temporal way, we're here to eradicate poverty. We're here to heal everybody in the world that's sick. We're here to make the world a better place. We're here to make the environment better. We're here to cure Terry's dog, whatever it may be although that would be nice. But whatever it may be, as good as it sounds, it's a temporal mission and we're called to something else. So not only are we tempted to redefine ourselves and turn our attention from our mission to I'm against this, we're also sometimes tempted to lower our vision and say, oh yeah, I'm gonna make the world a better place. Humanists are interested in making the world a better place. Christians do that as a side effect of what we're doing. Does that make sense? We do that to show the world we're pretty serious about this hope. We're pretty serious about this compassion thing. We're going to show you what Jesus looks like. Humanitarians are trying to make the world a better place. So sometimes we can get co-opted. We can get co-opted by nationalism. In other words, we can identify our religion with a certain country, with a certain political party, with a certain ideology, and that takes our focus down and, again, confines us to a border. Churches aren't confined to borders. We become very ineffective when we think of ourselves as a church as confined to a border. Another is prosperity. Churches get off track in terms of prosperity. For example, I hate to tell you this, Christianity is growing in China but one of the major reasons Christianity is growing in China is the Chinese look at America and they say, I see two things. They got a lot of stuff and they're Christian. Hum, wonder if there's a connection. Now I'm not labeling all Chinese as prosperity theology. Don't get that wrong. But you, if you read the literature on it, there are a, in their minds, there's an identification of these. And so you get this sort of synergistic idea of christianity and doing well really go hand in hand and that's a mission creep for the church as well because christianity isn't a means to become prosperous and get blessings from god it sound familiar you hear a lot of this in the united states too is hey go be a christian get blessings from god what in this mission statement i told you had anything to do with you and me raking in blessings from god nothing And so my point to you is there are a lot of ways for us to get off track in our culture, and that's probably the challenge for us. We have a clear mission, and the challenge is probably allowing that mission to be corrupted by something else. Question? Do you think the church needs to embrace science in order to speak more intellectually with the age of reason culture that we live in? Yeah, do you think the church needs to embrace science? That's it's almost just a meaningless question to me in this sense. I mean, I'm glad you asked that question, but what I mean by that is there's never been any reason for science in the church to be at odds. Science and the church are not even slightly at odds. Bad science in the church are majorly at odds and should be. The greatest discoveries... Up to present time, have been made by Christians, been made by people of faith. There's no inherent barrier. Christians have a major problem with naturalism and materialism. And I think we've talked about that in a, another series, but the philosophy, that humanistic ideology that we equate with science, it's the Enlightenment idea. Science didn't come out of the Enlightenment. In other words, you can do science and be a Christian, you couldn't do science very well and be in the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. And that's why we tend to identify the individualism of the Enlightenment, the humanism, and the idea that we're most important and we're all there is with science because those two came together. There's never been any reason that you can't have, and you do today, have top-notch scientists who are uh, Christians, there's never been any reason for us to have a problem with science. There's always been a reason with us having a problem dealing with the schizophrenia of this culture that thinks that reason is useful. We think reason's useful. No, actually, they think reason's a God. There's where we part company. Absolutely, more Christians should be scientists. Abs- you shouldn't be Christian scientists if you want to. No, I'm just kidding. More Christians should be scientists. More Christians ought to be movie producers. More Christians ought to just get out there and influence the culture because that's what we've been called to do. Go take the message. And one of the ways to take the message is go do science. Go find outstanding discoveries and say, look at this. Didn't God create a wonderful world? Let me tell you about real healing. Let me tell you about what it's really about. That's a great, great question. What are some examples of ways to warn the culture? Good idea, how do we warn this culture? The strategy that I'm gonna suggest depends on, if you're gonna go, you're a doctor and you wanna cure a patient, you kinda of wanna figure out what disease they have. Well, this culture has an interesting little disease, like I've told you. It has a disease of egotism and rationality and I'm what matters and we can figure everything out. And then Mr. Hyde comes in and goes, oh my gosh, we're destroying the world. Look at all the problems in the world. You know, in other words, you've got this kind of weird thing going here uh, this kind of a self-denying type thing. So I think our strategy then is to go engage the brain and engage the heart. And we usually do that by using our hands. In other words, we gain authenticity by going out and showing compassion, healing the sick, feeding the poor. And they go, hey, you're interested in making the world a better place. Sort of. Come with me. I've got to tell you some things. Let me tell you what I'm about. Let me show you what it looks like to not be schizophrenic. Let me show you what it looks like to have a reasonable worldview of why things are happening and what this all actually means. So we're gonna engage the head we're going to engage the heart. The techniques we use, every technique that you can imagine. Uh, technology is good. We should be making movies that have powerful themes of redemption and hope for the world. We should be doing things in the world, and we are, that define us as we are here to lovingly warn you that you're crazy and we know where sanity is, right? I mean, you got to tell a crazy person they're crazy. And so we, but we know where it is. So using technology, but also using low tech, let's go find those kids and say, Jesus Christ loves you. Here's some bread. We're going to help you. Does that make sense? In other words, we got to get out, We've got to get outside our walls and we've got to get out there and reach out using the high-tech and the low-tech because our world has both. Remember that picture of the medical scanner and the kid about to die with a buzzard? Seriously, about ready to eat him as soon as he dies? That's our world, and we've got to engage both of those. High-tech, low-tech. Get out there and and do both. That's a good question. Okay? Well... The challenge, let me just conclude with this, is we are in the end times, but I don't mean that in a sensationalist way. I just mean we are dealing with humanity as an adult. We have a very clear message. Go be watchmen and warn this culture. Do everything we can to take the love of Christ, everything we can to take a coherent worldview to this culture and bring some mental peace to it. But the key is for us is to stay focused on that message. Realize that the power is in God, the power is not in us. It's not our armies, it's not our nation, it's not our institutional church. It's in the good news of Jesus Christ that we take to the world. That's how God is working in the world. So I don't want you to think, oh, the Bible's done and he's finished working. He's working, and here's the scary part, through you. All right? Like Ezekiel, we're going to get to heaven, and he's going to say, how'd you do with the plan I gave you? Well, I just want to be able to say we were real busy. You know, we did exactly what we what you wanted us to do. And he said, "That's all I needed." Well, yeah, but th- we didn't convert the whole world. That's fine. That was not your problem. Your problem was to be faithful and get out there and do it. So, that's your assignment for the till July 9th. July 9th, we'll do something different. But between now and then, go tell the world it's crazy and you can cure it. All right. Thanks, guys.